Hello, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that's just outside the norm. I am Sean, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Eric. What's up, y'all? Alright, so in this episode, we're going to be talking all about cults. So this is a very interesting topic that was suggested by one of our listeners, Yerby. And it's a very interesting topic. I'm almost surprised that we haven't covered it yet. But I'm glad he did bring it to our attention so we can really dive into it. Yeah, it was a really, really good suggestion. I definitely skimmed through a ton of different cults when researching this episode. There's all kinds of different stuff out there. People people are kind of strange, but whatever. People have their different beliefs to each his own. But there's cults about you know religion, cults about God. There, there's cults about aliens, an unusual amount of cults about aliens. Um, there's cults about sex, all kinds of stuff out there. But it's definitely interesting and fun to research. Yeah, we've picked a few of some of the more infamous and cults that we found pretty interesting to discuss in this episode. I actually had a experience with some, I don't know if I would necessarily call them a cult, but I was approached by some people trying to bring me to a church that was supposedly a branch off of Christianity, and they approached me actually at, at one of the stores near where I live and started talking to me for almost 10 minutes, and my wife got pretty pissed off and walked away, but I sat there and just listened to him talk for a little while because it was interesting, and I wanted to you know at least have a little respect for him and hear them out, and then I basically just said, oh, I'm not interested, but thanks for your time, and walked off, but it was basically a cult about formed in Korea about god being a woman or something like that anyways i wasn't really paying attention but it was kind of cool yeah i mean there's still to this day there are tons of cults that are still active i mean obviously they don't advertise themselves as cults but you know just all these small little tightly knit groups of like-minded people and not even cults that are still around but new cults that are popping up right every day so anyways yeah, so this is going to be part one of two. This episode, we're going to be talking about the cults themselves and what their different beliefs and structures are, and basically what big event they are notorious for. And in the second part, we'll be talking about some of the leaders themselves behind these cults and how they rose to power and what brought about their downfall. And just a warning for this episode, some of the Topics and stories we'll be talking about are, are pretty disturbing. I've usually I think of myself a little more desensitized to this type of stuff, but some of the things that we found in our research even disturbed me. So just just a warning before we get started. Yeah, so so listen with caution. Alright, so let's get started with one of the biggest and baddest out there, the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre. So why don't you get us started, Eric? Yeah, so the People's Temple was actually formed in 1955, and it was originally called the Wings of Deliverance. And initially, it started off as a pretty inspiring story of a young reverend by the infamous name of Jim Jones, who left a church that was actually unwilling to tolerate a racially mixed congregation. So this individual known as Jim Jones, who we'll become very familiar with over the next few minutes, he was totally committed to social equality and this young man started off with a, a following of 
only 20 people and quickly developed into a refuge for societies underprivileged. So they actually had lots of different things going on. They developed a soup kitchen, and they even had an orphanage. And in 1960, Jones and his wife became the first white couple in Indianapolis to adopt a black child. And that's one of the hardest parts about the stories is that it starts with so much promise. I mean, both the People's Temple itself and Jim Jones... I mean, the first couple of years, it's like you got the feeling this could almost turn into something great just for, I mean, just that he was striving for social equality and, you know, was trying to help out all these people in need, but things soon turned for the worse. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that a lot of people really, really adored this guy, as we'll soon learn. So by the 1970s, the reputation that he had developed began to take more of an unsavory turn. They became known as more of a cult as members were forced to separate themselves from society and even from their own unbelieving families. He had many compounds. However, in the mid-70s, amid some negative media attention that had sprung up regarding his, his group of followers, this powerful individual led some Roughly 1,000 members of his cult to an agricultural project in Guyana, where he promised them that they would develop into a new utopian community and kind of form their own civilization out there in the jungle. Unfortunately, Guyana turned out to be far less of a paradise than most expected. Despite enduring harsh conditions and long workdays, the members were severely punished if they even remotely questioned Jones's authority. Yeah, and during this time, Jones was getting really just paranoid about everybody. So he kind of installed this program where people were encouraged to tattle on each other. So you had, you know, people turning on their friends, parents turning on their kids, kids turning on their their parents if they heard anything about them wanting to leave. So it was a pretty scary time. I mean, Jones was just working these people like 20 hours a day. They were barely getting any sleep. He had this broadcast system that would blast his voice like almost 24-7. So most of these people were very just starved for sleep and brainwashed at this point. Yeah, and we kind of think of Jones as being similar to kind of like Adolf Hitler. You know, he's pure evil incarnate. However, he's brilliant and, and extremely persuasive guy that has just developed this this way of communicating and being able to convince other people that he's right and that they need to follow him. And so a- another fact about Jones is that by this point in his life, he was actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, he was actually pretty heavily addicted to drugs and his health was declining pretty rapidly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at this point he had been just going on a downward spiral. Um, I think one of his sons even said that at this point he was starting to think his father only had a few months left to live before he would inevitably overdose. So, I mean, at this point, his brain was just... I mean, his mind was just gone from all the, the drugs he was taking, whatever mental conditions he had. Right. So, part of keeping these individuals in line, in addition to his own persuasion tactics was that this this compound was actually being enforced by armed guards who frequently, you know, patrolled all over this sort of agriculture cooperative they had. One of the few 
people who managed to get out of the situations we'll talk later said that that was kind of a turning point where they had all these armed guards. But instead of protection, he mentions that these people that they had known for years, but all of a sudden they had guns now, and they weren't pointing outwards, they were pointing inwards and making sure that no one was leaving. Mm. So in November of 1978, there was a congressman named Leo Ryan, and he actually flew to the compound with a group of journalists and investigators to relinquish several cult members for the sake of some of their concerned family members. And when they arrived in the jungle, they were initially stalled from entering, but soon they were surprised to learn that they were welcomed by Jones with dinner and entertainment. However, pretty soon, many of the cult members began to reach out to Ryan kind of in secret to help them escape from the clutches of Jim Jones. Yeah, that night they were having kind of this big celebration. I guess Jones kind of put this together to show this party how everyone was so happy. And, you know, they were doing all these dances and singing. And Ryan himself even mentioned that everyone seemed like they were loving their time there. But, yeah, a few people were did manage to sneak secret notes to some of the people who worked for Ryan. So they knew that everything wasn't exactly peachy there. And they knew for certain that a few people did want to get out, but they were just too afraid to say so. Right. So Ryan actually aided a few of these individuals. And the next day, he, the journalists, and several defectors were were leaving. And they were making their way through the jungle to the airstrip to their waiting planes when they were ambushed by gunmen sent by Jones to kill them. So that day, Congressman Ryan and four others were murdered. In the ensuing pandemonium that was brought about by the incident, later in the day, Jones warned his cult members that they were going to be abducted by soldiers and tortured, and that in order to prevent the dissolution of the temple, the members must pay the ultimate price. So over 900 people committed the proverbial drinking of the Kool-Aid that's a phrase that I think we all toss around on occasion, but this Kool-Aid was actually poisoned with cyanide, and it resulted in everybody's immediate death. Yeah, j- just a side note, even though the the phrase is, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid, it was actually the knockoff flavor aid that they had at the camp there. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, in one way, I would see Kool-Aid would not want that to tarnish their reputation, but, you know, I mean, to this day, we're Still talking about Kool-Aid instead of flavor aid, so maybe it helped in the long run. <laughs> so, I don't know about you, Sean. I know you're familiar with most of the photographs about this incident, but one of some of the more famous photographs kind of show an aerial view of the aftermath, and they, it just reveals bodies strewn across an open field surrounding the compound, just shoulder to shoulder, taking up like every square foot of space. Yeah, it is disturbing. I mean, you just see a hundred, almost a thousand people just laid out in the fields around this these buildings. Right. And it's just, it is unnatural because it doesn't look like a battlefield because like you said, everyone is kind of grouped together. Right. And it, it's it's very uh, unnerving and creepy if you, if you do see the pictures, just to know that all these people are just lying there dead. And that's almost what made it, all the more stranger was like you said, it's not like a battlefield. It's not like people were, you know, fighting or, you know, struggling to stay alive. They all just, you know, very obediently 
drank the poison and died right where they stood. F- fell over and died right where they stood. So yeah. the drug addicted Jones himself was actually found seated in a chair with a single bullet lodged in his head. And I think it was believed that this was self-inflicted. Yeah, they, they can't say for 100% certain, but they do believe the gun that was used to shoot him was a few feet away from his body. But you could just say that, you know, his arm fell and the gun went away right. or fell away a few feet. But they say most likely that he did end up killing himself, which I guess, I mean, he took the easy way out that I, I, I don't know. So I think it's just a last thing that just showed how much of a coward he is, that he wasn't willing to, to take the poison along with everyone else, that he just wanted the instant death. Definitely. And not have to, you know, suffer feeling that the poison take effect. And the other thing I noticed in some of the photographs that I wanted to discuss was that a lot, in a lot of the photographs, you'll notice some crossbows with quivers with arrows in them near a lot of the bodies. I wasn't really sure what the deal with that was. If it was, you know, kind of, if, if they were given these crossbows to defend the camp it was probably just part of the armed guard. I mean, I guess they had, they had those. They had, you know, pistols, automatic weapons. So, I mean, mo- I'm sure most of those were belonged to the armed guards. And, you know, I mean, they all drank the poison too, or at least the, the majority that we know of, unless a few escaped that we don't know of. But, I mean, there, there, there were weapons around because some of those guys did have weapons on them, but they ended up dying just like everyone else. Yeah. Perhaps... As disturbing as this story is, one of the more creepy aspects of this is that you can actually listen to this whole thing. There was actually a recorded tape known as the Jonestown Suicide Tape that you can find online and you can actually hear these people's last minutes. And this was just brought to us from our longtime Twitter follower at War of Wolves. So thanks for bringing this up to us. And... For those interested, it, I have to give a warning. It is quite disturbing, but if you, but if you have a morbid curiosity and want to find it, you can find it pretty much anywhere online. It's on YouTube a couple times, but so in this death tape, it starts with Jones giving reasons why everyone needs to commit suicide. So, like you mentioned, he's saying that he knows that the senator is going to be killed, and. If they kill a senator, then there's going to be U.S. troops coming in, and he says they're going to kill all the old people, and they're going to torture and imprison the adults, and they're going to take everyone's kids away. And he says, you know, why don't we just all go out together as one big family like we've always been? And, I mean, there is a few people that didn't want to. There was one woman who stood up and was trying to say, like, you know, why can't we figure out something else? But people just kind of argue with her, and everyone just kind of joins in with Jones. And the turning point is when the armed guards that Eric mentioned earlier who went and killed the senator, you, you can actually hear on the tape when they come back and they confirm that they killed Leo Ryan. And that's that's kind of the point of no return. Everyone knows at that point that this is the only way out. Or at least that's what Jones tells them and they all fall in line. And so he brings out this poison and everyone starts drinking it and... You can hear kids crying that they don't want it because Jones is saying that the kids have to go first and he's telling all the mothers to bring up their kids. And it, I mean, that's probably the hardest part when you hear like kids scream like, no, I don't want to, but inevitably they all get poisoned. And then just as the tape goes on, it just gets quieter and quieter as 
more and more people are dying of the poison, and there's just not that many people left. And it, it's just a very dark and creepy disturbing. It's, I think it's like 40, 50 minutes long in total. So, I mean, if you're really interested and feel the need to listen to it, you can. Just just a warning beforehand, you're probably going to feel pretty depressed afterwards. Eric, I don't know if, you, if you've had a chance to, to listen or if you knew about this. Uh, actually, I hadn't. I just noticed that you put it up here, but it's probably going to be something that I end up listening to pretty soon. I'm going to be totally honest. You know, I... I, I it, like you said, it's it's more of a morbid curiosity thing. Um, it's right. definitely going to affect me pretty negatively, especially now that I have a child of my own. But but yeah, I could see how that could be extremely troublesome to any sort of rational individual. Yeah, I think I listened to it years ago, and it, it disturbed me. And then I think I kind of mentally blocked it out. But then uh, it was just brought to our attention again on Twitter. So yeah, yeah, I kind of listened to part of it, just kind of skimmed around and and heard the different the major points of the, the tape so uh. like we said if it's disturbing but if you're curious about it, it it's out there i've been mentally blocking out a lot of things since we started doing this podcast <laughs> very true <laughs> uh. all right so yeah that's the the story of the people's temple and yeah just an interesting note is that this was the the largest loss of U.S. civilians' life in a deliberate manner before the terrorist attacks of September 11th. So before that happened, this was pretty much the worst day in American history as far as loss of lives for civilians were concerned. All right, so now we're going to be moving on to a separate cult that is also known for a mass suicide or murder, depending on how you look at it. And that is the cult named the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. So pretty long name. Doesn't really doesn't really roll off the tongue like People's Temple, though. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to fit that on a, a business card that you hand out to people. It's kind of a <laughs> right. kind of a mouthful. Right. All right. So this movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments, and that's probably going to be the last time I say that in total, was a religious organization cult that kind of was a break off of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and this strange religious movement was founded towards the later 1980s in Uganda and Africa. In Uganda at the time, it was a period of unrest. There were several kind of civil wars going around at the time. This is when the big AIDS scare was happening, so that was upsetting a lot of people. And there was you were kind of seeing a lot of diminishing lack of faith in the church at the time to help the people out there. So the people who ended up forming this movement claimed that they had seen the Virgin Mary who had given them a message and so they started this group in preparation for what they believed was in a coming apocalypse. And as the name of this cult implies, the believers were under the strict rule that they must follow the Ten Commandments above all else. Now, as with as with the uh, People's Temple cult, I could see how with this one it would be fairly simple to get sucked into it at an early stage. Yeah. It doesn't seem, you know, for somebody who's possibly a devout Roman Catholic in Uganda at this time, it doesn't seem highly irrational to think, oh, well, these individuals who were also Roman Catholic saw the Virgin Mary, and now they're warning that 
on January 1st of 2000 that we're all going to be taken up to heaven post-apocalypse. So that doesn't seem terribly difficult to believe. I remember when I was 10 years old, and I was pretty scared about Y2K, so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing like you just said, how in the People's Temple, Jim Jones kind of started as a Christian-type minister, but, you know, so so people were mostly familiar with that, but then as time went on, obviously he kind of replaced God with himself, and things just went down from there, but, yeah, I mean, like you said, a lot of these people were already familiar with the church, but losing faith in it, so this is kind of just a second option, but one that they were kind of familiar with. Right. So the the members who failed to keep the Ten Commandments were punished harshly, though what exactly happened to many of these so-called heretics within the organization was unknown for some time. And as the years went on, the, the rules of this cult became much more strict and even more fanatical, up to the point that the members were completely forbidden to speak on some days, that they had to only use sign language. And basically this was just to ensure that they did not break the Tenth Commandment of bearing false witness against thy neighbor. So I mean, basically they were kept quiet the entire day just to make sure that they didn't tell a lie, which would prevent them from reaching salvation according to the leaders of this cult. And sex with others and the use of soap was also forbidden. I don't know why soap was forbidden, but what you have is thousands of very smelly, lonely, and quiet members. God, if soap, if using soap is enough to keep me out of heaven, I'm I'm definitely going straight to hell. Yeah, I think most people. God, <laughs> especially I'm I'm sure it's very hot in Africa there, so everyone's be sweaty and. Ugh. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, at least I guess you couldn't talk to complain about it. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. You could sign complain. Yeah, well, I'm sure everyone was just using their hands to pinch their nose or something. But... <laughs> Anyways, the the leaders of this movement were apparently, or as they said, they were directly told by God himself that the apocalypse would occur on January 1st in the year 2000. So Y2K, as you mentioned. So in preparation, all the members of this organization, they confessed their sins to the leaders and they sold all their belongings because why would they need them? And, of course, as we know now, January 1st passed, just like every other day, and nothing out of the ordinary happened. So, obviously, this caused a lot of unrest amongst the believers, and many members started to discuss leaving. Yeah, not only did a lot of the members discuss leaving, but also they began not only questioning the leaders in sort of a aggressive manner, but... Also, you know, they were demanding to have their money returned because a lot of them had sold all their belongings and at very low prices, and now they had essentially nothing, and the apocalypse had not occurred. So I mean, it's basically like they were robbed by the, the church leaders. Right. Yeah, so I mean, obviously they were angry, understandably, but I mean, the leaders quickly thought of a backup plan. So in order to try to bring their flock back, the leaders said that they had been mistaken with that date and this time they were told from up high that the actual date of the apocalypse was march 17th genius yeah i guess i guess god just had a a a scheduling error yeah he had a whoopsie (laughs) he's like oh i meant two months from now (laughs) march 17th i don't know how they came up with that day i was wondering that too that's how much time they needed to set up set up their (laughs) their dark plan i guess uh 
So, on that day, the leaders gathered as many of the members as they could, pretty much nearly all the ones who were active at the time, and they were going to hold this big get-together. So, they had all the members come into a single church building for what they said was going to be a massive celebration, I guess one last party before everything ended. So everyone was happy, and the congregation, they went inside the building to sing and worship. But within minutes, those who were nearby the church saw it erupt into flames. And the sounds of screamings could be heard within, but no one managed to escape the inferno that quickly, completely gutted the building out. Yeah, so I've heard a lot of, I've read a lot of numbers being tossed around about this particular incident. Um, but apparently they found a total of 330 skulls found in the church after the fire. But it's thought that many of them were reduced entirely to ash just because the fire burned so hot. So, But one thing's for sure, and that's that all of them were burned beyond recognition. Exactly. So there were no survivors from the flame, so the police did not know exactly what had happened inside the church. And at first glance from the outside, from those who knew how fanatical that cult was, it was widely thought that this was a mass suicide, like some kind of ceremony. Yeah, this this seems to kind of... The line between mass suicide versus mass murder gets blurred with a lot of these cult-related group killings. Yeah, and we'll get into a few different instances, but I think the police are almost more happy to name it a mass suicide than a mass murder. And we'll kind of get into that later on, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's just easier for everyone to be like, oh, they all killed themselves. Yeah. When that might not be the truth. Right. As in this case, because as they, the police digged a little further, they soon found evidence that pointed that perhaps the members of the congregation actually had no idea what was about to happen. So it turns out that the windows and the doors of the church had quickly and discreetly been nailed shut soon after everyone had been filed inside. So the members had then been sprayed with a liquid, which they had initially believed to be some type of holy water. But then shortly thereafter, the leaders quickly started a fire, which spread almost instantly across the church and consumed every single person inside. Right, so instead of it being water, it was actually some sort of accelerant, is what we're thinking. Yeah, and just everyone just went up in flames almost instantly. I actually read that the doors were nailed shut from the inside. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I, yeah, I read, like, people were nailing the doors and windows shut. Right. I guess I just assumed it was from the outside. I assumed that at first, and then I read it was nailed shut from the inside, which was interesting to me and the article i was reading was suggesting still that it was a mass murder as opposed to a suicide so i don't know why they would have nailed it shut from the inside but anyway yeah i mean i guess if if the leaders were saying like you know we have to keep everyone out or i mean i'm sure they could have said some kind of lie too well and it wouldn't have mattered much to those people anyways because they're the apocalypse is happening in their minds anyways exactly So after this event where all these hundreds of people died in this fire, the police started to investigate further into this sect, and they started searching the other compounds that this organization owned, as well as the homes of the leaders, and what they found was hundreds of corpses located 
spread out among those locations. Now, these people who had died showed signs of... Most of them were poisoned, but some had signs of strangulation. So, you have hundreds of people that are murdered associated with this organization. And most likely, what people think is that these people were members who had failed to keep all ten of the commandments sacred, or perhaps a few who had threatened to expose the faults of the leaders to the outside world. So it is now thought that the most likely scenario for this fiery event that burned this church full of people was that it was staged solely from the leaders without the members' knowledge, and that they decided to burn everyone instead of having their people break away from the cult after they figured out it was all bogus. Right, and it actually appeared that some of the bodies had been actually sitting in there decaying for weeks prior to the fiery event, and the total death toll of the the total death toll related to the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments was estimated to be over a thousand. However, while most of the leadership was found dead inside the church along with everyone else, the two bodies of the highest-ranking leaders could not be 100% verified. Right, so that led the police to think that these who had escaped perhaps had orchestrated this whole event. And, you know, they killed everybody, burned the evidence pretty much, and then got away. And just basically took the remaining money left from the movement with them. So there is a global arrest warrant out for these two psychopathic mass murderers who may still be on the loose. Yeah, I think psychopath is probably the most appropriate word we could use to describe these guys. Um, There were some rumors circulating that these murderers not only took the lives of innocent infants, but also engaged in some pretty disturbing acts such as cannibalism and drinking the blood of the infants that they killed, apparently on a weekly basis. And not only that, but I would just like to point out the irony that this sect was supposedly all about, you know, the keeping of the Ten Commandments, but one of the most well-known Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. And we just said they've found, they killed over a thousand people. Yeah. So. Well, you can't keep all of them. That's right. Yeah. Just just the ones that are convenient yeah. for your I mean, life. If you, if you get eight out of Ten Commandments, you're good. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah. but that's, even, if you, even if you violate one of them a thousand times. <laughs> Whoopsies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's another thing. Like this, this church that was burned down, like I said, it had you know, between 300 and 400 people and probably at least 50 of those were kids inside. So, I mean, it was whole families, men, women, and children inside. So whoever actually pulled this off literally had no qualms about killing any of these people. Yeah. All right. So that is the end of the movement for the restoration of the 10 commandments. So those are some, two pretty heavy-hitting cults right off the bat. You got pretty much two different cults that are pretty much have around a thousand people, have around a thousand deaths attributed to them. So now let's talk about our, our next cult of the day, and this is known as the Order of the Solar Temple. So first we start off with a little bit of history about the Order of the Solar Temple. So these individuals were a secret society that was started in Geneva, Switzerland in 1984. 
and the order considered themselves somewhat of descendants of the Knights Templar. The Templar themselves was itself a somewhat secretive militaristic religious order that started in the 12th century in the Holy Lands during the Crusades, before it was banished by the Pope in 1312. The founder of the Solar Temple had belonged to another splinter group that traced itself back to the Templars, which had strong beliefs in the coming end of the world. Yeah, there were a lot of these little splinter cults that supposedly could trace themselves back to the Knights Templar. I guess that seems like a good starting point if you're going to create a little cult like this. I mean, I guess a lot of people kind of like the ideas of the secret organization, so... Yeah, sure. I could see myself being drawn to something like that. Why not be in an organization that says they're related or descendants of the the Knights Templar? That would be pretty sweet. So today, the Order of the Solar Temple has become infamous in name with several ceremonies of mass suicides in the mid-90s, as well as a few murders, including the ritualistic human sacrifice of a young child. And this secret order was created by Luc Jure, a homeopathic physician and New Age lecturer, along with Joseph de Mambro. One of the central beliefs core to the order was the belief that the world as we know it would face an apocalyptic catastrophe in the 90s. Members of the Solar Temple believe that in order to prepare for this event, they must elevate themselves to a higher spiritual plane, whatever that means. Yeah, so this is like the second doomsday cult that we talk about. All these people are just waiting for this apocalypse to happen. So the Order believed that the second coming of Christ would also happen soon and hearken the end of the world. This time around, Jesus would take the form of a solar god-king, thus giving the order their worship-like name of the sun. The ceremonies and rituals of the order were a strange mix of existing Christian rites and New Age philosophy, along with borrowing elements from other societies like the Freemasons. The order also incorporated belief in extraterrestrial entities into their religion as well. I find it kind of interesting that some of these sort of New Age cults have this attachment to extraterrestrial life. Yeah, I mean, I guess if your order is based around worshipping the the sun or the space or something, I mean, you might as well throw some alien life form in there, too. Sure. So as the order grew, they created lodges to hold their members located in France, Canada, Australia, Switzerland, and various other countries. The lodges had elaborate altars where the cult would worship and conduct their rituals. During ceremonies, members were to wear white robes with red crosses, hearkening back to the Templar knights during the Crusades. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I mean, just from the the starting, you know, you have a secret organization. You have these cool little ceremonies, and you get to dress up like a knight. I mean, <laughs> that sounds pretty cool right there. I know. I could definitely see me getting sucked into it. And the thing about the Knights Templar where they were kind of like the 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 elite military group during their time. So, you know, why not be associated with something cool like that? That would that would be like kind of that would be kind of like one of us wanting to be in the Navy SEALs. Yeah. So the members themselves could advance up the ranks through a number of grades and levels. And newcomers started off at the lowest level, 
which was known as the Brothers of Parvis, and would then be promoted to the Knights of the Alliance before reaching the top tier of the Brothers of the Ancient Times. So very flowery titles that you could earn. And followers could be promoted up these levels by their faith and commitment to the order, which in actuality meant mostly paying money and having sex with the leader, Luc Jurey. Yeah, there was one story where they inducted this old guy, and he was pretty much almost on his deathbed, but he was loaded with money. And the leaders just happened to say, like, oh, this guy has, like, an extremely strong, like, spiritual presence, and brought him in and managed to convince him to pretty much give him most of his money, which was, like, a lot of money. And they ended up just shooting him right up the rank, so he pretty much jumped to the third level, which was the highest on his first day. So that kind of just shows that basically the richer you are, the more powerful and higher up you can be in this cult. Right. It kind of reminds me of the Illuminati episode we did where it's kind of just like about, it's more about who you know, how much money you have and how many beers you can drink in one night to kind of earn your rank amongst the the other people in your group. Exactly. So, everything was all fun and games at the beginning, but as the years went on, the critics of this order were beginning to grow in number. There had been little negative media coverage of the group in Europe, but in Canada, negative press was beginning to grow. And a few members were arrested in 1993 for trying to buy handguns, which started to raise some red flags. The Solar Temple was starting to feel some pressure from the outside. Some of the members who had been with the Order for a while were now starting to feel a lack of confidence within the group, and the leaders Dre and Demambro were extraordinarily concerned with their public image. I mean, without this, they would have trouble recruiting new members as well as keeping current ones, and their whole thing was basically getting new people in to get more money, so obviously they needed a plan. So one of the members whose name was Tony de Troyes soon grew tired of the hypocrisy, greed, and probably just overall weirdness of this order, and he left. He just broke ties with them and moved away. And Tony was one of the first members from inside the cult to speak about the truths of basically how all these elaborate ceremonies, which were supposed to be holy, were all faked in stage, basically just smoke and mirror stuff which were put on by the leaders, Jure and Demambro. Unfortunately for Tony de Troyes and his family, the leaders of the order did not take too kindly to dissension. So in October of 1994, Tony de Troyes and his wife were killed, and his three-month-old infant son was stabbed to death with a wooden stake. The order members who had conducted this murder did so because Demambro convinced them that the infant was actually the Antichrist. In common sense, in hindsight, it is clear now that the leaders had this ex-member and his family killed just for speaking out against the cult. So after this murder, Demambro and 12 of his most elite members had a ritualistic Last Supper, most likely symbolic that Demambro had a feeling that his time of power was almost up and whether he told his most trusted followers of the disturbing events that were to take place soon is unknown. 
but perhaps feeling that the end was near for their order as pressure from the outside critics and governments grew, and morale and commitment inside the cult seemed to be waning, along with the murder of an entire family that they just carried out a few days ago, Luke Jure and Joseph DeMambro must have decided to go out with a bang, and then this is where stuff starts to get weird. So at houses in the Swiss district of Cherry and Salvan, two disturbing events took place. Investigating police would find themselves in a nightmarish scenario, as it was immediately evident to those who walked into those two buildings that the smell of death was in the air. They found that dozens of members of the Order of the Solar Temple had died in some way. Two people died of suffocation, 21 had received sleeping pills before being shot to death, and 10 bodies were found with plastic bags over their heads. Several of them showed signs of struggle. This is what I found weird, is the lack of consistency with the deaths. Right. Had, like three or four different ways of people dying, but they all like died in you know, one location. So, I mean, it, it's I, I found that very odd when I first read this case. You don't really see that with other cults. It's usually, you know, they all get drank poison, like the People's Temple, or they all burn, um, like the Ten Commandments. But this is like, you know, you got some suffocating, some poison, some shot, some strangle with plastic bags. It's all over the place. Definitely a, a strange M.O. An interesting side note, on the day that he died, Joseph de Mambro gave another member a letter which said, Following the tragic transit at Cherry, we insist on specifying in the name of the Rose Cross that we deplore and totally dis disassociate ourselves from the barbarous, incompetent, and aberrant conductor of Dr. Luke Jurey. He is the cause of veritable carnage. And this perhaps shows that the leaders were not in total agreement with running the order and that there may have been conflicts rising between the two as at how it all ended up. Yeah, I mean, they both ended up dying along with these two scenes of mass suicide, but yeah, it's kind of hard to... Th this note kind of shows that maybe one of them was trying to break away or that they weren't 100% in, and sure. perhaps one of them had the other one killed and staged the whole thing with a mass suicide, I don't know. The specialized gun that was proven to have fired all 65 bullets at the scene could only fire one at a time, so this would basically be a difficult task. Some of the bodies had multiple lethal bullet wounds, so like, why would someone committing suicide shoot themselves several times? So that basically sort of disproves the thought that it was suicide, because obviously you would you wouldn't be able to shoot yourself more than once because you'd have to reload after each shot. So four months later, a second ritualistic suicide took place, and 16 more members were found dead in France. The bodies had been burned and laid out in a star formation with their feet pointing towards the center. And the investigators theorized that two members, one of whom was a policeman, shot the other 14, including three children that were aged 18 months, two years, and four years. And the two leaders of this ritual poured gasoline over their dead comrades and set them on fire before shooting themselves and falling into the flames. Yeah, so you have basically three different 
places where this mass suicide supposedly is taking place, but it's starting to look like it's more like mass murder of the leaders um, taking it out on the, the members themselves. Yeah, so I think there were a total of 69 members of the cult that were either murdered or killed themselves in some sort of ritualistic way. What exactly happened at these locations is hard to tell, as there were no survivors of those mass suicide events. Also, some of the relatives of the deceased members feel like the police did not do a very good job at investigating the scenes. So these sites of the supposed suicides were left open for several days before being officially closed off by the police. And some would argue that someone could have walked onto the scene and stolen valuable evidence in that time. Also, an ex-cult member who was interrogated felt pressured by the police into saying that the group was merely a suicide sect. And anything she said about those knights saying that she doesn't believe that those people took their own lives, the police really didn't take it seriously or write those down. So once again, this is kind of showing that the police kind of had their minds set on a mass suicide from the beginning, and that's basically all they wanted to hear about. I don't know, maybe mass suicide is less paperwork than mass murder, who knows? Hmm, Interesting. Several members who were in other locations and had broken away from the order after the leaders killed themselves have since wondered what they would have done if they were there. I was watching a documentary where one former member admits that he honestly can't say for certain what he would have done with his state of mind during his time with the cult. And this man does admit that he can see a way that he would have been convinced to pull the trigger though rather on others instead of himself, and claims that that thought has scared him the most out of this whole situation, that he could be manipulated into killing others. Also, I mean, despite this weird and controversial and troubled past, the Order of the Solar Temple is supposedly still active to this day. So it is believed that there could be anywhere from 150 to perhaps 500 members around, though it's hard to know for sure since this is a secret organization. I find it interesting just how easily people, you could take a perfectly good person, and when you just surround them with this sort of indoctrination, you can just totally change their character and ultimately make them do things that are completely out of character for them. Yeah, this one was weird where... I mean, just from the, there are just a few survivors, but yeah, it's like they, this cult is a little different in that a lot of the members were like older people. They weren't like young or impressionable. A lot of them were experienced. There were several high profile people. Like there was a, like we mentioned, there was a policeman. I think there were a few people who had like government jobs in this order. So it, it's, this one's a little more unique than some of the other smaller ones and that they were pretty much just normal, everyday people, but somehow they got swept up into this order and met a tragic end. So the next cult we're going to discuss today is a little less heavy, and even to somewhat of a degree a little bit comical, but nonetheless sinister and still sort of overpowering in a sense. But this cult is known as Scientology, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Scientology. It's been made famous by several celebrities that claim to practice it. 
such as Tom Cruise, Will Smith, and John Travolta. And even the infamous Charles Manson is said to have dabbled in Scientology, but left because it was, quote, too crazy. You know you're in a weird organization when Charles Manson is like, you know what, this isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is some bizarre stuff. So Scientology actually literally translate into the phrase, the study of knowledge, which, as we will discuss in a moment, is actually rather kind of counterintuitive to some of the beliefs that you're about to hear. So the Church of Scientology was founded by a L. Ron Hubbard, who, now deceased, is expected to return in another form and pick things up where he left off with Scientology. And this is actually a religion that offers a precise path leading to a complete and certain understanding of one's true spiritual nature and one's relationship to self, family groups, mankind, all life forms, the material universe, the spiritual universe, and the supreme being. And it's actually based on a self-help program known as Dianetics. And it's not really a dogmatic religion where the practitioner is expected to accept doctrines based on faith, but rather one discovers for himself that the principles of Scientology are true by applying its principles and observing or experiencing the results. So practitioners of Scientology claim that there are over 10 million other followers. However, critics think it's more like half a million. Yeah, that's what I heard recently, that their membership has been dwindling a lot in the past couple of years. It's really, really a good thing, in my opinion. But quite honestly, you know, if if you're to go to the website Scientology.org, it actually appears to be a rather normal, run-of-the-mill religious movement. So, I don't know, it, it, they definitely don't portray themselves as the, the crazies you're about to hear about. So, the amount of weirdness generated by this ever-growing religious movement is enough to inspire some to develop an unwavering belief and devotion to its principles, while it can cause others to look on in a completely dumbfounded manner of disbelief, which is pretty much describes my personal view on Scientology. But much of the information that's been leaked as a result of some of these horrified defectors is how we get all our information about it, because, again, it's it's sort of a, a secretive organization. All right. So let's get right into the uh, juicy part. So Scientology is generally believed to use brainwashing, fraud, and financial means to force people into submission. And in addition to this, their doctrine teaches some extremely bizarre things. All right, so let's get into this. So some of the many beliefs of the Scientologists include that the first is that humans evolved from clams. Uh, pretty pretty plausible. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we have a you know a hard outer shell that opens up and <laughs> produce pearls. <laughs> I don't even know how you get that. I don't know. Oh. It's it's. I, I just want to say it's really in contrast to what you see on the website because you look at the website and it's just picture this guy at a pulpit 
you know, preaching Lord knows what, and then you hear about their beliefs and they think that humans evolved from clams, but. Yeah, well, that's what I've heard. Like, a lot of these weird stuff is things that you don't, you aren't told until you're more higher up in the organization. Right. So. Right, yeah. This is this is all the, the secret, juicy little nuggets that, yeah, that, we're, that we're dealing out here. <laughs> we're, we're spilling the beans on them. Yeah. So, number two is that Earth is inhabited by alien thetans. So, the alien overlord Xenu kidnapped and murdered millions of thetans by putting them on Earth and volcanoes and then blowing them up with hydrogen bombs. <laughs> so, the, the souls of these thetans attach themselves to our ancestors and they pass them on to us. So, these <laughs> thetans are responsible for many diseases and ailments that we experience and are actually responsible for controlling our body. You know, instead of the central nervous system, which would be simply crazy to think of. Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all. It's definitely the thetans that are controlling our, our mind and body. Yeah, and all those hydrogen bombs blowing up volcanoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like some Dr. Evil stuff, or I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they believe that anyone who criticizes Scientology can be attacked and robbed. So I guess that makes us targets. I guess so. Yeah. Hopefully they won't come out for us because there's some really powerful people that believe Scientology. Yeah. But remember, we're sponsored by the Illuminati, so we... That's right. That's right, so they got our backs. So members of the upper echelon, which is known as the Sea Organization who break the rules are subject to severe punishment and indoctrination known as Rehabilitation Project Force. Sounds kind of sci-fi. It does. It sounds pretty intense, but definitely not something I'd want to be subjected to. I hear that. So Scientologists are also highly against psychiatrists and believe they are evil incarnate and out to destroy Scientology. So there were two cases, one of a Scientologist named Lisa McPherson, who was involved in a car accident and suffered severe psychological trauma. She became mentally unstable and was subsequently kidnapped by Scientology agents against her will, and refused psychiatric treatment, and as a direct result, starved herself to death. Also, another case where a man named Jeremy Perkins, whose parents were both Scientologists, was not allowed to receive psychiatric treatment, and later he too became unstable and murdered his own mother. So, the the current the current leader of Scientology, his name is David Miscavige, and he was married. He is married to a woman known as Shelley Miscavige, and she has gone missing, and. So David Miscavige is a, a very demanding, hard-to-please individual. And both of these two individuals were members of the C organization, which is, again, the upper echelon of the Scientologists. And based on reports that surfaced in 2013, Shelley had taken it upon herself years ago, back in 2006, to cross off some of her husband's to-do list by taking care of some administrative things while David was out of town. David, being the hard-to-please individual that he is, upon learning of this, he got upset and allegedly sent her to a place known as the Church of Spiritual Technology, 
which is a essentially a retreat for individuals who screw up in the Scientology world. So basically he got upset at her for doing his chores and sent her to this re-indoctrination program. And it's believed that she is either being held here against her will or she's become a victim of a psychiatric syndrome known as Stockholm Syndrome where the subject who's being held captive develops a sort of sympathy and attachment to her captors. So she's been missing since 2007. However, she has made a few extremely brief appearances and actually at one point met with the L.A. police, at which point the missing person report was canceled. Yeah, that's a whole mystery case upon itself. I mean, there, there are a lot of different conspiracy theories and different rumors and ideas out there as to what actually happened with Shelley. Some think that she died and has been replaced with kind of like a, a double or that she is being held against her will. So, I mean, that's... If you're interested in this, start, start looking into that case and you'll be going down a rabbit hole. It's There's just so much information. Or I guess yeah. a lot of rumors out there about what happened to her. I could definitely see that being a, a possible explanation because this David Miscavige guy... He's just got all this money and all this power, and I could see him getting upset at his wife for something stupid and just, like, killing her or something crazy like that and, you know, replacing her with a body double who makes an appearance every now and then. Yeah, could be. So the Church of Spiritual Technology, which I just mentioned, is essentially a top-secret stronghold located outside of San Bernardino. And that's in California. And this is where Shelley is thought to be currently by some. And it's in some ways similar to a prison as it's surrounded by a razor wire fence and countless security cameras. And it's actually designed to withstand a nuclear warhead, which means that if we ever get into like a World War Three type scenario, that <laughs> these people are going to be the ones repopulating the world. So many defectors have spoken of the unforgiving methods of punishment that Scientologists use to keep their devoted members in line. And there's another place known as The Hole, which is a facility that's been developed to house the elite members of Scientology that also fall out of line for whatever reason. So this compound is essentially a prison where individuals will be drug off to endure bizarre punishments you know they'll so they'll have to like sleep on bug infested floors and eat strange you know mysterious food like i don't know what i'm eating it's like a sloppy <laughs> goo and they've also been subjected to strange punishments like being forced to stand in a trash can and be doused with water and do like chores for the organization like balancing checkbooks and administrative tasks so some people are sentenced to just a few weeks in the hole, while others have been there for years. I was kind of crazy that this organization has that much power, that they can literally make its members disappear for years. Right. And basically the police can't do anything about it. It is pretty intriguing. So despite the name of Scientology, again, it kind of appears that nothing about this 21st century cult is actually logical or rational 
or even lends itself a shred of rational explanation. However, it would seem that it's more along the lines of some rich sociopathic individuals on a path to, you know, take over the world or something evil like that. You'd think right off the bat, since L. Ron Hubbard started off, I mean, he wrote several science fiction novels that, I mean, you'd think any weird religion that he starts that you'd kind of have to take with a grain of salt. Be like, you know, aren't you the guy who writes about aliens and stuff anyway? Right, right. But he probably didn't see this Scientology going as far as it did. I mean, I'm sure he just started it just to make a buttload of money. That's true. Kind of like our uh, podcast. We never really thought this would go anywhere. Yeah, true. But here we are. Hey, maybe one day we'll be as big as Scientology. Maybe. (laughs) 500,000. All right, so now we're going to jump to our final cult discussion of the episode, and this is going to be about the Fall River Cult. So the Fall River Cult was not an official organization or even a secret society like a few of the other cults we have discussed. In reality, it was more just a disturbed and twisted little group of prostitutes, which was led by their deranged pimp. So a man named Carl Drew was the leader of this so-called cult, who was a Massachusetts pimp and a self-styled Satanist. So Drew used the trappings of his twisted religion to keep his women folk in line, compelling their participation in cult rituals and threatening savage violence if they tried to reject his protection. So to give a quick history of the location, Fall River already had an infamous past, as it was home to Lizzie Borden who was suspected of murdering her father and mother with an axe in one of America's most well-known crimes. I'm sure a lot of people here listening are familiar at least somewhat with the case of Lizzie Borden. So when the town's economy took a hit during the 1970s, the area soon found itself with a prostitution problem, as lowlives and petty criminals moved into the area to take advantage and the streets were soon crowded with prostitutes and their pimps, and the local police were struggling to get a handle on this new problem that they really hadn't had to face before. And things got even worse when they discovered the first body of one of the dead prostitutes. And when all was said and done about this case, this small little area soon found itself home to a whole new sort of evil. Carl Drew found himself in a pretty nice position as one of the pimps staking claims to the area. Beyond just selling out the women, Drew had an even darker side that would soon come out. Proclaiming to his forced fellowship of prostitutes, Drew started to claim that he was Satan himself. He would reportedly chant and pray in a so-called different language, and would lead his flock through the grisly steps of human sacrifices on several occasions. Yeah, so the first victim was called Donna Levesque of Fall River, and her mutilated body was actually discovered on October 13, 1979. And Donna was found face down in the grass with her hands bound behind her. And Donna's body was a mess of cuts and bruises with all sorts of you know signs of sexual assault and everything like that. And her face and skull were so broken and crushed that the woman was all but unrecognizable. 
that's not the sort of crime that these people were used to in this small little town. So this definitely started to raise some flags with the police that something isn't right here. And there was another body that was found in 1980. This time it was found in the woods. Her name was Barbara Raposa, and she was 22 and another known prostitute. And as disturbing as Donna's death was, Barbara's was even more gruesome. And she was found by a man walking his pet beagle. Her body was laying face down atop a flat stone that almost resembled an altar, with her hands bound behind her, as with Donna. Her body was beaten horribly, so much so that her skull was practically crushed flat. And she also had multiple stab wounds. The man who discovered the body found it to be so mutilated that he initially didn't even recognize it as a human being. He actually thought at first that his dog had happened upon a mangled dead animal or something. And after the beagle went in closer to take a few bites, then the man finally came to realize that he had found the remains of a deceased woman. What a horrible way to end a dog walk. (laughs) You know, you're just going through the woods... With your pet beagle, and then you find the mutilated remains of a woman. That's yeah. Well, that's that's definitely one perspective on the story. I mean, that's kind of the least of my concerns <laughs> is the guy's dog walk. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that, Sean. So, so two other members of Carl Drew's sadistic little cult who had witnessed the murders included. Fellow prostitutes Karen Marsden, who is 20 years old, and Robin Murphy, who is only 18. And while Robin Murphy was not disgusted or turned off by the sadistic violence of Drew, she actually would take part in the rituals themselves later on. So Karen Marsden, on the other hand, was completely repulsed and decided to break away. Karen was in fear for her life, obviously. And she felt that she had seen too much and could be viewed as a liability to Drew. And she also remained just outside of his close inner circle of this satanic group, that she didn't feel safe from his wrath. So Karen went to the local police and confessed all she knew, and she named her pimp Carl Drew as this ringleader of the group responsible for the pair of murders that the police had found. And she was offered protective custody for the time being to hide her away from Drew, since they knew that he was so violent. But she felt this was unnecessary, or perhaps she just didn't trust the police. I'm not quite sure on that, but she decided that she did not need protective custody for that time. And this would basically prove to be quite an unfortunate decision for the 20-year-old woman. And instead of being taken away safely, Karen asked the police to drop her off at a local church where she would hope to stay for a while. And after the police dropped her off, that was basically the last time that she was seen alive. So on February 8th, 1980, Karen Marsden, after being abducted by members of the cult, would find herself to be the newest sacrifice to Drew's command. She was beaten, humiliated, and ultimately murdered at a ritualistic cult gathering. So Karen Marsden was tortured by having her hair and fingernails ripped out. And then to silence her screams from filling the woods, 
Drew had her beaten over the head with large stones. So as Karen Marsden was struggling to remain conscious after the blows, Drew just walked up to her and snapped her neck with his bare hands, finally killing her. However, even after her death, his taste for violence had not been satiated, and the pimp persuaded his member and fellow prostitute Robin Murphy to slash Marsden's throat and neck several times with a knife. Drew would then go on to remove Marsden's head, after which he and his fellow cultist members took turns punting it around like a football. Drew then ordered that her fingers be cut off so that he could steal her rings to pawn for cash. So Karen Marsden was officially missing for quite some time, several months in fact, and it wasn't until April 13th of the same year that fragments of her skull and scraps of her clothing were found deep in the woods. So no other trace of her body had surfaced or has ever been seen since, but the authorities were able to identify the remains as belonging to Karen Marsden by comparing bone fragments with skull x-rays that had been taken by her in 1978 when the victim was treated for a sinus ailment. A few months after this, Robin Murphy, who was a prostitute of Carl Jew and had taken place in Karen Marsden's murder, perhaps feeling guilty of helping kill her former friend, was starting to crack under the strain of concealing multiple cult murders. So Robin went to the police and confessed all of her crimes, and along with naming Carl Drew as the satanic killer of all these women. And Robin was able to plead guilty for her role and the Marsden sacrifice, and she accepted a life sentence for her crimes, and she also agreed to testify for the state against Drew, which led him into jail. That's interesting, because if you, um, if you Google Fall River Cult, the first thing that'll come up is com, which is essentially a website dedicated to defending Carl Drew, and it's basically his personal testimony. It starts off with a high exclamation point. I'm Carl Drew, and this is my story. And it's basically like I'm I'm 50, year, 50 years old, and I've spent half my life in prison for a crime I did not commit. So, you know, for, for this secondary individual, Robin Murphy, to plead guilty to, to not only f- name him as the murderer, but to also confess that she participated and then accept a life sentence in jail indicates to me, not knowing all the facts, because this is a very deep story, it just kind of indicates to me that he's there's at least a significant element of truth to what Robin Murphy said. Because what what else would be her motivation for getting herself thrown in prison for the rest of her life, but otherwise to, you know, kind of help somehow unburden her guilty conscience. Right. I mean, you would think if she was trying to make a cut or something that she would have gotten, you know, pled down to a a lesser sentence, you know, maybe like 20 years or something. But for, I mean, fully confessing to the murder and taking the life sentence, but then also going on to helping the state testify against Drew. Like you said, I think that does add credibility that she was telling the truth and that Carl Drew was the killer. I mean, along with the fact that, obviously, before Karen Marsden had also named him as the killer, but unfortunately she died shortly thereafter. So the police already had 
kind of their eyes on Drew, and then this kind of just cemented their case against him. So I guess just kind of in terms of some some closing discussion, we've discussed a lot of different types of cults, some on the more more you know silly kind of innocent end of the spectrum, so some really heavy, dark, evil cults. I don't know. I guess it's kind of like what kind of causes people to join up with these cults and then to stay stay with them. I mean, is it just like psychological manipulation? I think that these people are what you hear from a lot of people who survive these situations and they were first brought in is that I think a lot of them felt like something was missing in their life. You know, perhaps they belonged to a religion but was starting to feel that wasn't right for them or you know, they were down to luck or they were poor or, you know, just something. But they found this group of people who fully accepted them in and, you know, made them think that they were perhaps more powerful or there was something more to them. And that probably just appeals to the people. Right. And also a different explanation is that, you know, some of these cults get you, like you said, when you're when you're weak when you need something, you need help, you need a friend, they get you, they get you to commit, whether, you know, financially or however, and then they, and then you're stuck and they control you because you don't have any possessions, you have no job, all you have is this cult and you're stuck with them and you can't leave, not only because they're going to hunt you down and kill you or punish you or embarrass you or whatever but also because even if you did leave what would you have you'd have nothing yeah i think what we've seen is if you look at the history of all these cults they seem pretty innocent at first some even helpful i mean like the people's temple is all about social equality so i think a lot of people join these organizations with good intentions but then as they stuck with it through the years things started to go bad and like you said they were kind of stuck with them they had already given them a bunch of their money you know they they didn't have anything else but this cult unfortunately for hundreds and i mean thousands of people in this episode that we've talked about their lives ended because they just got in too deep with these cults yeah so hopefully we haven't seen we haven't yet seen any mass ritualistic suicides or murders at least with Scientology cult. Hopefully, we won't see that anytime soon, if ever. But it definitely has potential. Right. So, sort of a follow up question to that is Would you consider some of these mass killings to be mass suicides or mass murders? Sean, what's your take? I think it's a case by case thing. I think we've pretty much come to the conclusion that for the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments cult, I think that's pretty straightforward that it was a mass murder staged as a mass suicide by the leaders. When you get into things like the People's Temple, I think that's where it gets into a little gray area. Yeah. I think that some, I'm sure some of the people there believed with all their heart that they were doing the right thing and that they should commit suicide. But a, I'm sure at the same time, a lot of the other people there did not want to die. And they were kind of either pressured into it or in some cases they were forced to take the poison. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can see to a point where if you've been with this group for years 
at this point you're brainwashed, you know, you're getting two or three hours of sleep a day, you're hearing Jim Jones's voice 24-7, and you found out that your group just murdered a U.S. senator, and your leader is telling you that the soldiers are going to come and kill you anyway, so why not just take the quick and easy way out? Sure. I, I can see in that mind frame that a normal person their mind would be warped to that point where they would think that suicide is the right option. And that plays into the psychological manipulation that I, I was I mentioned earlier because Jim Jones was yes, he was a sick, evil individual, but at the same time he was very good at what he did. And what he did was manipulate innocent people into doing what he wanted them to. And I, I think that's kinda where he exerted the the science of persuasion and psychological manipulation by making these people completely exhausted i mean i've i've believed some pretty crazy things when i'm just completely exhausted and i've i I act very strange when i'm when i'm super tired so i i could definitely see how you know he's he's using the science of persuasion to get these people to do whatever he wants and also the tactic that he used for convincing the parents to poison their kids first. Because, you know, all the kids, you know, five, ten minutes, he rushed them in, they're all poisoned. Even if the parents have a moment of clarity, I mean, why would you want to live when you, you know, if you realize you just killed your child? Right, definitely. At that, at that point, even if they do come to him like, wait, I don't want to do this, but then you're like, you know, my kid's dead, everyone around me's dying, why not just take take it out? Yeah, you know, just... Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I think it would take an unusually strong person to have actually walked out of that place alive when, like you said, everybody else around you was dead or dying. So, I, And if, if you look at the demographics of the people that were in the Jim Jones cult, the People's Temple cult, they were pretty low – socioeconomic, poorly educated individuals. So it's not somebody, something, they're not the type of people that I would expect to rise above a situation like that. Yeah, I can see that. And I mean, plus this guy is basically become their whole life at this point. Mm -hmm. He's replaced the God that he used to preach about, kind of removed him and taken that place. So in Jim Jones's mind, he is these people's God. And if he tells them that it's time to to die, for the people who are truly believers, they're all going to go with him. Yeah. So that's it for this episode of the Strange Matters podcast. If you would like to reach out to us to provide a little bit of feedback about the episode, if you would like to contribute some details that you know about these cults, or even if you're a member of one of these cults and you disagree with something we've said, please feel free to Reach out to us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. Or you can comment on our webpage, strangematterspodcast.com. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, do us a favor. Please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us to improve the podcast and to uh, reach more listeners. Also a reminder that Strange Matters is a member of the Dark Myths Collective. And Dark Myths is a group of like-minded podcasts and with a whole bunch of genres ranging from weird and mysterious stuff like we cover but also a number of history podcasts and a few really good fictional ones 
And the featured Dark Myth podcast of the month is one named Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. And this show is a fictionalized podcast about a paranormal investigator in the 90s who investigates bizarre cases and interviews people associated with mysterious and strange events. So it's more of a humorous, lighthearted show that kind of follows this fictional radio host who is losing his mind while trying to figure out all these strange conspiracies and paranormal events going on. So if you're looking for a show that's a little on the funny side, but also deals with some strange mysteries and conspiracies, please check out Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. Until next time at Strange Matters Podcast, stay creepy, everybody. See ya.